What does it mean to be human in a post-COVID world? How are we connected to other humans? What is the role of privacy and social justice when responding to a global pandemic? These are some of the big questions philosophy researchers are asking and that we'll be exploring in today's episode of Forward. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Alison Innes, and each episode I bring you an interesting conversation with a researcher from Brock University's Faculty of Humanities. Now, if you find the idea of philosophy a little intimidating, stick with me. I get where you're coming from. In fact, I'll let you in on a little secret if you promise not to tell. I used to find philosophy really intimidating. I hadn't taken philosophy courses, and in fact, I kind of had the image of it as big words and complex ideas that I could never hope to understand. But my conversations with today's guest as the pandemic unfolded over the past year really showed me how important and relevant philosophy and philosophical questions are to today's society. And I'm really excited to bring this conversation to you. So stick with me and we'll explain the big words. My guest today is Dr. Christine Dagla, a philosophy professor with Brock's Interdisciplinary Humanities PhD program and director of the Posthumanism Research Institute. And we'll find out what that means in a minute. She joins me today from Finland, where she is currently a research director core fellow at the Helsinki Collegium for Advanced Studies. She's currently researching vulnerability and ethics, and her research is funded by the Social Sciences and Human Research Council of Canada, commonly known as SHRC. She's also a member of the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, Chair on Community Sustainable Research Team at Brock, where she investigates the ways humans are entangled with the environment and how to frame notions of sustainability. So welcome, Christine. Thanks, Alison. Thanks for having me. Thank you for making the time in your busy schedule of the, of the uh, various projects that, that you're involved with. So I figure we should start today's conversation with maybe a discussion of what post-humanism is. So how, how do you explain it to non-experts? Okay, <clears throat> well, we need to start with uh, humanism, actually, to, to grasp what post-humanism is about. Humanism is a Western philosophical worldview um, that posits the human as special. It is an anthropocentric worldview, that, a worldview that revolves around the human. Um, the human is exceptional. It is a rational animal. It is separate from non-human animals, and it is separate from nature. Um, it can put its reason to work, to create and use tools, culture, technology, etc., um, the human of the humanist perspective um, is um, is uh, typically conceived as a as a white cisgendered heterosexual able bodied middle class man, and a humanist perspective also adopts a hierarchical view of beings, uh, and that hierarchical view allows for. Uh, oppressive practices. For example, if I consider myself as a human being to be exceptional and separate from nature, that entitles me to exploit that nature and extract resources from it for my own well-being to the detriment of, um, of nature, for example. So um, this is what um, 
humanism is in a nutshell. And so post-humanism is a critical take on this worldview and one that rejects this understanding of the human. Post-humanism wants to say, we need to rethink ourselves. Uh, we have been misconceiving ourselves as this kind of exceptional being. And we need to understand that in fact, um, there are no such distinctions. There are no distinctions between the human and the non-human animal, the human and nature. Um, the other distinction that, um, that operates within humanism, that between the mind and the body, is also a, a, a dualistic way of conceiving the, the human that post-humanists want to reject because they think that we are always embodied. You cannot separate the mind from the body and you cannot separate that embodied human from its surrounding and other beings with whom it is entangled. Um, one thing I'd like to, uh, if I may, um, um, explain here is an important distinction between post-humanism and transhumanism. Uh, and sometimes people conflate the two, right? Um, and, and it has happened that transhumanist views have been referred to as post-humanist. So there's a bit of confusion around that. Um, transhumanists um, are really techno-optimistic hyper-humanists. Um, they believe in the exceptionality of the human being. They believe in the powers of reason. They, um, they have great faith in technology, um, in enhancing the human, in remedying um, all the flaws that our bodies have. And um, they have faith in the development of technology, artificial intelligence and whatnot um, to assist us um, in... Uh, are very human pursuits, right? Um, so it, it, in that sense, it is a hyper-humanism. So um, we, as post-humanists, um, there might be an interest, in, not might, there is an interest in technology and, and artificial intelligence for sure. Um, but um, we are not um, seeing this kind of technological capacity as a, as a panacea to uh, human and social problems. Um, rather, we look at those um, in terms of our entanglements with them. For example, right now we're using technology to record um, this podcast, um, and, but it's humans having interactions via that technology and being surrounded by possibly all kinds of other beings that interact at this moment, right? Um, so this would be the way a post-humanist would, um, would approach technology, not as um, our best hope for the future, <laughs> but um, rather as, as, what, as one of the many things that forms um, our environments, right? So how long has, has this idea or this approach been around? Uh, the idea of post-humanism? Yeah, um, it, it's a rather recent um, philosophical movement, if if you want to call it that. It's it originates in in the late nineteen nineties. Um, there are, of course, um, precursors um, to that movement. 
Um, if you think of, um, you know, post-humanism has its roots in the critical approach that you find in feminism, for example, uh, post-colonial theory, disability studies, um, critical animal studies, um, those studies that really emerged and consolidated um, in the 70s and 80s, um, and then continued developing beyond that. Um, so the, these movements and, and, and philosophical conceptions are really a, a part of that lineage that leads to the development of critical posthumanism. Um, but, but the movement itself is rather recent and, and it's really burgeoning right now. There's, there's a lot of uh, interest in it and, and more and more people who are interested in, in developing concepts and ideas. So the idea then is that we as humans are connected to other humans, to the environment, to technology, to animals. We're kind of all, we're, we're all connected somehow. Yeah, the notion of interconnectivity or entanglement um, is, is really one of the key features of post-humanist thinking. Um, and it, it, it has many different aspects, uh, as you were saying. So first, um, there, there's the idea that um, the, the human individual is itself an assemblage. It is an assemblage of um, many different um, beings and particles and species. Um, we are uh, individually multi-species. We host species and they form um, our being. They, they help us live, really. Sometimes they harm us, <laughs> as we've learned. Um, but... Um, so, so we are this assemblage. Uh, we're also constituted by the substances we ingest, um, the substances that penetrate our bodies willingly or unwillingly, pollution, um, heavy metals that are in the environment and that are found in bodies. Um, and um, all of these things come together to coalesce to form the individual human. Um, but we're also, so we're entangled in this way and, and we're further entangled through all of our relations with all the other beings um, that, that exist um, in, in the world, really. I mean, it, you, something that happens at the other end of the planet um, can impact you, again, as we've found out in the last year, right? And, and, and so... This is possible because of the, the, the very complex networks of relations that exist between beings. And these entanglements um, are both subjective and material. Um, and it's important to consider both aspects. For example, right now, we're having a conversation. Uh, people are listening. And so this is an intersubjective uh, network of relations, um, an intersubjective entanglement, and it's constitutive of each party to, to this affair. Um, but at the same time, we're each, each and every one of us are also materially entangled. I had a snack before 
talking to you. So that that food matter that is now in, sitting in my stomach is is doing something, and it, and it's part of my, my material being as we speak. Um, the air temperature, the sounds, um, all of these things, right? Um, so. Um, the, the idea of entanglement goes along with the notion of permeability, um, the porosity of beings, um, the permeability of beings, both bodies and minds. But again, remember, we can't disentangle these two, right? So um, whatever is constituting my material being right now is also constituting my uh, subjective being, and vice versa, and all of it, all at the same time. Okay, so it um, it's a really big idea, <laughs> um, in some ways, um, to to kind of wrap wrap our heads around. Um, but on some level, it also kind of makes intuitive sense that um, that we that we have this this interconnectivity. But the the idea, um, yes, I, I I agree with you. It makes intuitive sense. Once you think about it, you can you can say, oh yeah, that, that's actually how I experience things, right? Um, but one of the problem with the way in which we have conceived of ourselves is that we've wanted to ignore these interconnections. Um, we have fancied that we were these beings that were separate from others that had like firm limits and boundaries and, and whatnot, right? So we were living under the fantasy um, that we were um, autonomous um, beings separate from other beings. Um, and so that's part of the post-humanist agenda to, to reverse that and say, no, we, we were wrong about this view of ourselves. So, so how does this view of entanglement then, how, how does it affect um, our ethical or political views of the world and of ourselves? Well, the, the first step I would say um, is that if we, if we really grasp this idea uh, of entanglement, um, we will then understand that we are vulnerable beings. And understanding one's own vulnerability and the necessity to embrace that vulnerability, um, so rather than try to guard ourselves against it, which is what we've done for centuries, <laughs> if we accept it, understand it, embrace it, we will approach our action and behavior toward other beings with whom we understand that we are in relation um, differently. That, that's, in any case, that's the hope, right? Um, if, if I understand that, my, my favorite example, um, uh, maybe as a, as a means to justify my messy yard, but it's a good example, it works. Um, there, there's different approaches to mending one's yard. Uh, you could choose to have a manicured yard where everything is perfect, looks perfect from a certain point of view, right? Mm -hmm. And um, just cut your grass regularly, you know, trim the bushes, keep as little 
clutter as possible and, and whatnot. You could use pesticides to assist you. You could use herbicides. You could trap critters to relocate them or worst. Um, you could do all this to have a manicured yard or uh, you could leave things a little messy. And again, messy from a certain perspective, right? Um, you could let things grow. You could leave um, the, the fallen leaves in the fall rather than collect every single one of them to have a clean yard. Um, you could let the bushes grow a little wild to provide shelter for birds and critters and bugs. Um, all of these things um, you could do out of laziness or you could do because you understand that you are thereby providing some care for those beings with whom you are entangled, with whom you share the world. Because there are these beings out there mm. and their well-being is also important just as much as your well-being. And their well-being is more important than whatever aesthetic preferences you might have, right? And um, so that's an example of how you would in change the way you relate with other beings. So you would have a different kind of ethos um, animating your action and decision making. Yeah, I like the gardening metaphor. <laughs> Um, so recently in your work, you've been looking at relationships between humans and non-human animals. And um, I noticed that that, um, that that's, seems to be the preferred terminology of humans and non-human animals. Um, and is that, is that getting at the idea of that entanglement again, that, that, we're, that it's not a hierarchy? Uh, yeah, I mean, because if you say the human and the, han and the animal... Uh, you're right there. You're positing a strong distinction, um, and and you're 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 positing a distinction, and you're saying the human is not animal-like, um, but in fact we are. And and further, um, we are of the same matter as everything. So not just the non-human animal, but also plants and minerals and and whatnot. Um, so if, again, if we're going to take seriously the, the notion that we share in the same matter and the same material processes, um, then to, to use language that reintroduces distinctions is problematic. Um, yeah, so, so I would say that's why this would be the preferred uh, way to talk about that relation. And we're seeing that complexity then between humans and non-human animals with and zoonotic diseases um, with, of course, our very present circumstances of the COVID-19 pandemic that um, at time of recording um, here in Niagara, at Brock anyway, we've kind of just hit the one year, the one year anniversary that's the right word. It's um, Mark, Mark, I guess. Um, so with these zoonotic diseases and, and um, the, the relationships between humans and non-human animals, um, like what, how, how do you characterize that relationship now? And what, um, what needs to change so that um, we maybe 
understand that vulnerability or um, respond to that vulnerability in um, a useful way. Can I backtrack a bit? Yes, certainly. Um, to answer this, yeah. um, I, I think it would be helpful to also um, bring about the notion of response ability, okay. which is um, an important concept uh, in post-humanist thinking. So yes, we need to recognize we're materially entangled, that we are vulnerable, that we need to embrace this vulnerability. We share in the same materiality. We're of the same matter as all other beings. But there's, there's still something that makes us maybe a little bit exceptional. It's not an exceptionalism, but there's one thing that distinguishes us is that we have the ability to respond. Once we recognize all these things, and once we recognize the extent of the damage we have caused, and the extent of the problems we have brought about, because we failed to recognize ourselves as we are, we have the ability to change course and to adopt a different ethos. And because we, has, we have that, that ability to respond, we have the duty to respond and to adopt that ethos. This is how I would build um, the ethical response ability um, in, in a post-humanist uh, framework. Now that means, in terms of our relations with non-human animals, that means revising really um, many, if not all, of the ways we relate to non-human animals. Um, a colleague of mine, uh, Patricia McCormack, um, proposes that we need to embrace an ethics of letting be. It's an ethics of grace. Let the non-human animal be. Let, let them be by themselves. Let them pursue their own projects, whatever those are. And, and just, just take a distance from the non-human animal and do our things and let them do their things. Now, if you think about this idea, in so many ways, we are failing to let the non-human animal be. Um, we have pets. We factory farm non-human animals. Uh, we hunt non-human animals. We, uh, we engage in urban development. And we grab land and we encroach on wildlife habitats, um, all these things that we do uh, are, are the opposite of letting the non-human animal be. So we have a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. And what does it um, mean then in terms of our vulnerability to disease? and, and uh, zoonotic diseases or anim animal origin uh, diseases like, like COVID-19? Well, it, it means um, th th there's a lot of things going on um, in terms of um, those types of diseases. Um, one of the problems, of course, is that as we get closer and closer to uh, to wildlife, as we as we cause the loss of their natural habitats, 
wildlife gets closer and closer to humans. Um, and, and sometimes wild, wildlife carries disease and, and it's totally fine and it's not deadly to them. And, and it's like a minor cold would be for us, for example. Um, but if it jumps species, then um, it can create a lot of havoc in that other species. So in the case of zoonotic diseases like COVID-19, this is what we're experiencing. Um, so, um, but, but that is that this jumping species phenomenon is possible because we're always getting closer to, um, to non-human animals with whom in normal circumstances, if we were not as greedy and as exploitative and extractive of resources, and if we were not taking more and more space, um, we wouldn't be in contact, um, with those non-human animals. Um, likewise, when we engage in factory farming practices, uh, when you're thinking about broiler chicken or, or battery chicken uh, or, or cattle uh, for meat consumption um, and whatnot, you're, 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 you're packing non-human animals in inhumane conditions and you're administering things like antibiotics, for example, and, and, and other things. And, and you're, you're creating conditions where diseases can emerge. And um, there has been a case recently in Russia um, of another um, avian flu uh, jumping to humans. And uh, that was in a, I believe it was a, a battery chicken farm. Um, so there, there, there are problems with those practices. Well, first, um, consuming animals for, for our nourishment uh, is problematic right there. Uh, we don't need to do so. Um, but if we have to do so, I don't think we have to, but, but let's say someone thinks they have to, um, it, it's questionable whether we should engage um, in those types of practices. Um, not that any kind of free range um, uh, practice is much better. It's still oppressive and destructive um, and, um, and problematic. Um, but if people think that the steak they eat is coming from this um, pristine field where Daisy the cow spent happy days munching on the grass, they're very wrong. Um, so I don't know where I'm going with this. Um, but anyways, <laughs> your, your question was about zoonotic yeah. diseases. I mean, even in factory farming, um, you have emergence of diseases that can then pass on to human. Um, not to mention how it affects the quality. Like if you're a meat eater um, or dairy and egg consumer, um, you have to question yourself about the quality of the, of the food um, you are consuming if it is produced in these kinds of conditions with animals that are sick and, and spend miserable lives. So that is problematic. Yeah, and something else that you had also mentioned to me before in terms of the factory farming and that, that risk of zoonotic diseases is that the people who are often working in those conditions um, are often taken advantage of mm -hmm. um, and not treated well by other humans. 
Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the whole factory farming system rides upon a system of oppression that often exploits uh, racialized workers, um, disadvantaged workers, um, migrant workers, right? We have a lot of migrant workers in the Niagara region. Um, they're working orchards and, and um, vineyards mostly, but, um, but they are still living in um, much poorer conditions than, than we do. And, and so, um, and, and see the, the, the migrant workers working out in the orchards, um, they're uh, exposed on a daily basis to high uh, levels of, of uh, pesticides and herbicides, right? Um, and so their, their, their health is compromised in a way that the consumer down the line um, is not, right? Like it's, the, the consumer's health is still compromised, but not as much as the migrant worker that is up in the tree, um, mending the tree and, or collecting the fruit, right? Um, same thing for exposure to non-human animals um, in, in those uh, factory farm settings. Um, where where you're in close contact with the non-human animal who may be a carrier of disease, as these Russian uh, farm workers were, and and then uh, you become the vector for for that jump, right? So the virus jumps, mm -hmm. it, it literally jumps on you, and and then you then um, are able to infect other people, and and that's how you start um, uh, an epidemic and and potentially a pandemic. Um, in the case of COVID-19, what's interesting is that, um, well, at this moment of recording, because situation is always evolving and changing, right? But um, at this time, from what I know, um, they still have not identified with certainty where it originated. Um, they have sent a, a, a team of international researchers to Wuhan to try to determine whether indeed the live market um, was the, the point zero uh, of the pandemic. And I read an interview of one of these international researchers who was on the team and he said, well, there, there's no evidence. They've done all kinds of testing of non-human animals um, from the market, um, excrements and, and other uh, traces of these non-human animals, also the humans who were working at the market or shopping at the market. And it's not clear that this is where indeed um, the virus originated. So, um, but those kinds of settings um, have also been identified as problematic um, because they are also settings where um, you have the presence of um, wild animals like pangolins and uh, and. Um, animals like this with whom normally humans wouldn't be in contact, but they're brought to the live market because they are consumed, because they are considered to be a delicacy or, or whatever, right? And, and so when you have circumstances like that, then you're increasing the chances um, of zoonotic diseases to emerge. Um, so that is a problem. However, and I think I mentioned that to you before, um, when we talk about live markets and, and things like that, we have to be extremely careful not to, um, not to fall into the trap of um, you know, having this kind of racist take on um, food consumption practices 
that are foreign to us, right? Um, I, I think we, we heard some of mm-hmm. that at the beginning of the pandemic when that story about the bat soup was circulating and, and people were blaming bat consumption. Um, and um, there was even this viral video that went around and it was later shown that that video originated from 2016 and was not even from China. So, um, and this was part of a racist trope, right? Um, that, that is still ongoing about um, the pandemic. Um, some people um, still refer to the virus in, in very racist ways. Um, it's creating all kinds of, um, of issues and, and um, threats of violence and perpetration of violence against Asian people. Um, that's extremely dangerous and, and, and unacceptable, really. Um, so we have to be careful when, when we're talking about live markets and, and we think, oh, this is so uncivilized or such uncivilized uh, ways of consuming food, of nourishing ourselves. Well, what, what counts as civilized and who, who's entitled <laughs> to determine what is, right? Food consumption is food mm-hmm. consumption. Um, yeah. And then we're imposing our own hierarchy then, I guess, when, when we think about it that way of, uh, on, on animals and saying there are certain animals that are somehow better, like cows and um, chickens and pigs compared to what, what other cultures might eat, like bat soup. Yeah, or other cultures that might consume dog meat, for example. Um, and um, what makes that, what makes cow consumption, cow meat consumption, any less horrific than dog meat consumption, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in my mind, it's all horrific. Um, but yes, we're introducing um, all kinds of hierarchies that that really are hard to justify, and they're certainly not justifiable from a posthumanist perspective. Uh, when we're thinking that all beings are constituted in the same manner um, and out of the same matter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to talk a little bit more about the pandemic. Um, and you and I have, have spoken a few times for some Brock News articles, which I'll put a link to in, in, in our footnotes, about, about some of the ways that, that we are um, entangled with other human beings. Um, and we've talked about um, things like mask wearing and vaccine distribution, the idea of vaccine um, passports. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are at this stage in the pandemic of how of how we are thinking about other people and how we maybe need to be doing a better job maybe about thinking about other people. <laughs> yes, I would say we need to do a much better job <laughs> in how we relate to other humans for sure. Um, well, Again, things move so fast um, with this pandemic. Um, research um, is unfolding as we speak. Researchers are, are doing a fantastic job 
of, of looking at every aspect of this pandemic and how the virus operates, how it mutates, um, developing vaccines, testing their efficacy, checking if the, the efficacy is maintained, faced with variants and, and whatnot. And the information keeps evolving as, as researchers are making their way through these complex questions. Um, so that's a way of prefacing what I'm going to say and, and say maybe what I'm going to say is going to be completely invalid by the time this airs or by the time an auditor will listen to it down the road. Um, but um, mask wearing, for example, that, that is actually a really good example. There was a bit of confusion initially as to whether um, this was a measure that we should adopt and, and whether it was going to um, be um, effective in, in, in curbing the, 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 the rise of cases and things like that. So there was a bit of confusion. Then the recommendation came up that, yes, indeed, we should be wearing masks. And then some people were opposed to wearing masks. And But, um, I mean... Mask wearing, when you think about it, is, is a very minor inconvenience um, in a person's life. Um, if you uh, if you weigh that inconvenience um, against uh, the benefits to be gained, um, it's clear that we should um, wear masks. Um, masks are effective, and and also. Um, what I've written about is that wearing a mask is also a, a way to express to others that you understand that you may unwillingly be a carrier of the virus and understanding that and expressing care toward, towards others, you choose to limit within your means um, the possibility of transmitting it to someone else. So you're expressing care for others um, and an understanding um, of, of how you are vulnerable. The virus may be in you without you knowing. You could feel totally fine um, and be a carrier. That's, what, that's the trickiest part of this uh, virus, actually. Uh, is the asymptomatism, right? Um, so, so you could be a really well-intentioned person, a good person, um, and still infect someone and, and cause major health problems for severe cases and, and potentially death. Um, so knowing that, if you're a caring person, um, you would take the measures you can. And mask wearing is one of those measures. And when you do wear your mask, you're sending the signal that, okay, I get it. I, I get it. This could be a risk. And so I'm going to try to mitigate the risk. That's how I read other people's wearing their mask. Mm -hmm. So we've, we have been in this pandemic for what feels like eons. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and with vaccines rolling out, um, people are really excited about about vaccinations and getting vaccinated we um, should be 
and yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm. I found out my parents are, are are eligible now to to get their vaccinations, and I'm really really excited for them. Um, but what does this like? How how is this going to um, impact on that that idea of care for each other? Yeah. Well, we're all suffering pandemic fatigue. It's been a long time, as you said. Uh, it does feel like eons. It's been a year. Um, so we're all tired, even if, you know, some of us may not have faced as strict uh, restrictions as others. And all kinds of people have experienced it differently. A lot of people live by themselves, have, have had a really hard time being so isolated. Um, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, right, and, and then people living with others may not have had very favorable circumstances being locked down together. So um, we know about the rise in domestic violence cases and all of that. So it's been a really difficult time for everyone. Okay, so yes, wow, there's a vaccine. We have every reason to be excited. Um, we should genuinely be excited because it is exciting to see that human science um, has been able to develop vaccines so quickly, um, knowing that usually it takes years to um, develop an effective vaccine. So that's that's wonderful. That That's something to be excited about. Um, however, I think we're excited for the wrong reasons right now. Um, a lot of people are seeing vaccination as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, Monopoly reference. I don't know <laughs> if people play Monopoly anymore, but anyway. Um, but the idea that um, now that you're vaccinated, you can go back to normal. You can go back to your pre-pandemic life. You don't need to take precautions. You can gather together. Um, you can have a party of vaccinated people. Right. Uh, if all your friends have been vaccinated, you can now suddenly you can have a party um, or grandma has been vaccinated. So, hey, we can go and visit grandma. Um, but that, I think, is, is problematic because um, scientists have been saying at this moment, again, this could change. Uh, but right now they they are not certain um, whether the vaccine reduces or even um, eliminates the possibility of transmitting the virus. For right now, what they know is that it protects you from developing the disease, or if you do develop it, it's going to be a mild form of the disease, which is highly desir desirable. This is great. Um, but they don't know yet whether it will prevent transmission. And, and, and whether it will prevent you from even being a carrier or, or to carry sufficient amount of the virus to be a transmitter. So, so these are all questions they're looking at right now. So given this uncertainty, to think that we can go visit grandma tomorrow with the toddlers because grandma got her vaccine is very problematic because maybe grandma will get the virus. Maybe she'll develop a, the disease. Okay, it might be a milder version, but guess what? Grandma, if she goes to a vaccinated people party, 
Um, she might then transmit it to other people who will then transmit it to their families because their families are also visiting, <laughs> right? Um, and so people are misunderstanding that uh, even with the vaccine, because of the state of the science right now, uh, we need to continue to engage in the same um, hygienic um, measures, mask wearing, hand washing, social distancing, or physical distancing, depending on the phrase you prefer. Um, we need to carry on with this until we know um, what the actual full impact of the vaccine is. Now, of course, that means that we need to continue to be patient. Um, and patience is running low these days mm -hmm. because it's been a long time. So what I'm finding hard these days is that um, this, is what, this is how you hear people talk about vaccination and the effect of the vaccination. Um, comedians um, like Stephen Colbert, for example, um, you know, was, was making jokes about the Florida spring break gatherings and everything. And, and he's, he's right in criticizing those gatherings of young people. But then he says, he jokes and says, well, instead we should check the age and make sure they're over 80 and all vaccinated and send them to <laughs> spring break. Well, that too is problematic, Stephen. Right. And, and so this kind of public discourse that you see everywhere, um, it, it's also in the news and some of the news coverage and opinion pieces and everything. There, there's a slight misunderstanding of what the vaccine can do for you. Um, and I think there should be uh, more effort put into really getting the message out that for right now, we don't know. And because we don't know, we need to be to take precautions, uh, put in place the precautionary principle and can carry on with these measures as tired with them as we might be. So in some ways, the vaccine really highlights how entangled we are, I suppose, then, because um, it's one of those things where it's not just about the individual person, but having an, enough people vaccinated that the virus doesn't have anywhere to circulate. And I know that you have been thinking about that, not just in terms of local level, like we may think about our families or going back to work or school or that kind of thing, but it also requires some global thinking, you've been saying. Oh, absolutely. And this is something that uh, the World Health Organization has been advocating for. And th there's actually, um, since the last time we talked about this, there's been actually uh, more movement um, in that direction where people are starting to understand that, indeed, we need to take a global approach to vaccination. We ought to have taken a global approach to the management of the pandemic, which we haven't done. There was great variation in how um, restrictive measures were put in place across the globe, allowing for the virus to continue to circulate and to mutate. Now that we have vaccination available, um, available to whom, <laughs> right? Um, it's not available globally. Uh, some countries have hoarded doses. Um, countries with more financial means have uh, been willing to pay more for, for doses and therefore have received more. Um, and that is problematic. And so a market approach to acquiring um, vaccine doses for 
national populations or local populations um, may serve your local population, but in the long run, it won't. Um, because if the virus is allowed to continue to circulate in other populations across the globe, um, it, the more it circulates, the more likely it will mutate. And uh, we're, we're not certain at this moment um, as to whether there will be variants that will be resistant, um, that, that, that mm. will, for, for which the vaccines will not be efficient. So, um, again, knowing that, um, we should make every effort to make vaccination available globally across the globe to all countries, no matter what their financial means. Um, that, that, is, that is rather urgent. And, and also making vaccination available to all age groups, which right now is a problem because there are not enough um, doses available. Um, but that's another problem. It's, um, it's, again, driven by the market approach. Uh, pharmaceuticals are in this business to make money, mm -hmm. first and foremost. Um, it used to be different. Um, research used to be conducted in public-funded settings, and then pharmaceuticals would be hired to produce whatever um, medication researchers would come up with. But now that the research has been entrusted to pharmaceuticals and they claim that they need to make uh, as much money as is possible to fund this research, um, we have allowed for um, this market mentality to um, in infect, <laughs> yes, um, research for medication and for vaccines, right? And so pharmaceuticals are are saying, well, you know, we spent that much money developing this and that, and now we need to produce it. And so we need to, yes, cover our costs, but we also need to make profit. Well, when you have a global health emergency, this may not be time for profit. This, mm. this should be time for, yes, you need to cover your costs and we get that, um, but let's, let's arrange for that to happen. And let's also arrange for collaboration um, between companies, right? Um, and, and of course, that goes against the whole idea of patenting and, and whatnot and holding a recipe secret so that uh, one holds um, the financial power over this, right? Um, but, um, but there are labs and, and production facilities sitting idle as we speak. That shouldn't happen. Um, they should be... Um, put to work towards the, that, that effort um, to provide vaccines to the world's population as a whole. Do you think that, um, that there's a risk that this will just, um, that this will further the divide between um, people and countries that have money, that have um, influence, um, that are able to access compared to people in countries who who don't have have the, have those advantages? Um, yes, I think so. Unfortunately, what the pandemic has done in many ways, and and with the current vaccination efforts um, as well, is that it has just highlighted and exacerbated uh, the existing inequities um, that that we had, and so. Um, these inequities are not going away right now. They're, they're reinforced. 
and um, it was hard to um, to um, get political support to address them before. If the inequities are even worse, I I'm not I'm not sure what's next. Um, mm. I'm I'm not very optimistic. Um, I have my good days and my bad days. <laughs> Some days I'm optimistic, and then then a few more days I'm like, nah. It's not Depends what the headlines on Twitter are that morning, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, indeed. I mean, you know, like this this mass shooting of Asian women yesterday um, put me in a very pessimistic mode this mm-hmm. morning, for sure. So, um, so yes, it depends on the headlines, but but I think that there there needs to be a global reckoning that the way we've approached our lives and our Relations with others, humans, non-humans, um, the world, the natural world. Um, the, the, these were the wrong ways. We, we need to change course. And I, I don't know if we, if we have the, the strength, the will to do that. Um, and, and when we think of how our societies in the West anyways are structured, um, in neoliberal market terms, um, the, it, yeah, like how do you convince a Jeff Bezos that he has enough money now? Like I, someone was doing the maths the other day. It's insane the amount of money that this person owns. Why? Why so much money? What do you do with it? Why couldn't you, like with this kind of wealth, you could do so much good, right? And, and why aren't you doing that much good? And, and I just picked on Bezos, but there's many others like him, right? It, it, this is obscene. Th- this kind of approach to existence is obscene. And okay, we can point at these, you know, multi-billionaires uh, as, as, you know, being sort of evil in this way, um, not sort of, evil in this way. Um, but in many ways, our, our daily lives are also driven by a desire to accumulate things, to consume things, um, to, um, to accumulate some wealth and, and whatnot. And if we, if we pause and think about what it is we actually need, do we need everything we think we need. Um, And perhaps the pandemic has been the occasion for some to reflect on that. You know, some have said it has made me rethink um, the pace of my existence. Um, Being at home most of the time, I've reconnected with my family Um, or I've slowed down on my work. that's all good, um, and I think that that's positive if people have rethought things. I don't know when was the last time you bought a piece of cloth, but for me, that was a while ago. I'm always wearing mostly the same thing, <laughs> right? Um, and, and plus, you can't really go shopping easily, so the temptations aren't there and, and, and all of that stuff, right? So, the, so there are circumstances created by the pandemic that maybe are conducive for rethinking some of our ways of life and, and the, those consuming ways and, and whatnot. But, but that may be 
true for those people who are privileged enough already um, to not suffer from the circumstances in, in a way that, that is um, life-shattering. It, it has been life-shattering for a lot of people. People have lost their jobs. They've lost their, uh, in the U.S., uh, losing your job often meant losing your health insurance and, and um, you know, all kinds of other things, like in countries where you don't have a good social um, um, safety net. Social safety net. Yes, thank you. Uh, to to support you, um, you know, the, the the pandemic might have been really crushing. Uh, artists have had an incredibly hard time because um, they they haven't been able to perform or. Um, uh, or put their work out there in a way that would allow them to sustain themselves and, and whatnot. And, and so, and it has looked like for a while that culture was the last of the government's worries, right, to reopen concert halls and, and, and things like that. And it's my understanding that now Quebec is about to reopen um, uh, theaters and, and concert halls, which with limited um, access, limited audiences, but Still, this is a breath of fresh hair for, for artists um, who have had no livelihood um, over the last year. So, you know, when, when, you, when you don't know how you're going to pay your rent or mortgage or how you're going to put food on the table, um, and if you have health concerns and you've lost your health care um, because you lost your job in the U.S., um, I, I don't know if that gives you enough mental, emotional space to reassess your mode of existing. Mm. Um, so, you know, I've seen pieces by some uh, some thinkers about how, oh, this is a great moment for introspection and whatnot. Sure, I can do that as a privileged uh, middle class white woman who hasn't lost her job. I'm not sure that's accessible for everyone. Actually, I know it's not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of, of the, of the optimism in the early days of the pandemic about how, um, you know, we, we, we would somehow have, have all this time to do, <laughs> to do all these things. And it's really, it's really been, been the opposite just because the mental, the mental coping with the circumstances just can take, can take up so much of our, of our brain's uh, bandwidth. Uh, yes, and um, it's funny you were trying to say bandwidth, and there was a bit of a lag. So you need to keep this. Um, it's a perfect uh, moment. Um, I, I would say yes. The mental load uh, of coping with circumstances has been um, very heavy, and, and I think unexpectedly so. Um, but it takes me back to the notion of our interconnectivity and the way in which um, our life circumstances have changed has, has also meant uh, a, a, re, um, a realignment of our relations with others. Um, and, and that's really important. The way we relate with others has been changed uh, profoundly. We're not in the presence of others in the way we have been when we are. We're concerned. We have to uh, express care, um, but we're also worried. Um, if I have to go to 
um, to the dentist and you feel like you're going into uh, a war zone, um, that, that just raises your concern level, right? Um, and, and so, you know, all these things, if you have to travel somewhere like I did having to come here, uh, it was a 20-hour total travel time between my house and my apartment. So, you know, with being in the presence of others in all kinds of different settings. And so, you know, the, the, your anxiety um, plays out in all kinds of different ways. And, and, and then we've had to learn to, to stay in touch with others, but via these devices that we use um, and... Sure, we can stay in touch. We don't have to, to be completely isolated. Um, but um, I think it's a good question to ask ourselves whether such technological uh, replacements for in real life interactions, whether they do the same. And they, they might be a good approximation, I think, but they're definitely not the same. And so right now, you're looking at me, but you're not looking at me. Just like I might be looking at you because I'm looking at the camera, but I, that means I'm not looking at you on my screen, right? So this kind of disconnect um, right there, um, I, I think we're going to have a hard time having conversations where we're intently looking at each other in the eyes, right? Because we're no longer used to that, especially people who live by themselves, right? Um, so all these things, right? And, and, and I think you can see how, we, how much we long for the presence of the other and for in real life conversation. I think everybody can relate to this experience of just going to the grocery store and having the time of your life, having a chat with, um, <laughs> with the grocery clerk or the cashier, right? It has become a very exciting event in my life. <laughs> it's like people, it's like, I don't even have anything to say to you, but I just want to like stand, you know, six feet apart, but like, you know, be near other people is like a huge, huge. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so that shows, I think how much our, our uh, rapport to the other has been profoundly impacted and, um, and so that too uh, imposes a lot of mental and emotional load on us as we're dealing with this, because we were used to have all of these interpersonal relations and in real life encounters. Um, think of a crowded bus. Um, or the other night, I attended a concert in my living room and I was thinking, oh, that's fun. It was a great concert, but... It's not the same as being squished in a crowd in front of the stage, right? And as much as when you are squished by that crowd, by the stage, you hate having someone else's elbow in your ribs. I was missing it the other night, right? Because we're, we're, that's how we have been constituted. That's our life experience. And, and now that has been taken away from us. And it's going to be interesting to see how we readjust to the presence of others. I don't know if I will not mind an elbow in my ribs in the future, if that is ever possible again. <laughs> 
I was just thinking while you were talking of 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 an example that that I see whenever I go out to the drugstore or the grocery store, um, and it's it's perhaps a very Canadian example, but that that struggle of holding a door for somebody, <laughs> how how we have this this kind of innate desire, this innate politeness that we want to hold the door for somebody, but like watching how people navigate that, trying to balance that human interaction with also like standing as far away from the door as they can. Well, they, you know, it's, it's, it, it kind of encapsulates this, this tension that we're having, I guess, between, between interacting with people and, and, and recognizing that, but then also recognizing that the risk the risk that we that that we each pose to to each other. Yeah, and you know what? Thank you for this thought because that that's that's an, a light of optimism in my day. Um, because if we have these kinds of reflexes where we're like, oh yeah, let me hold the door for you, and then oh, oh geez, I might be too close to you. If we're having this kind of reaction, then we're caring. And we do understand um, mm. the current mm. circumstances and the various threats, right? Um, and that's good. <laughs> it's bad that we have to, to think about it. But I mean, that reaction in itself is good. It shows care and it shows understanding. And if the majority of people are caring and understanding, which some days I doubt, but if the majority are, then, then there's, there is hope that we can um, move forward in, in a positive and, and constructive manner. But it's going to be hard and, and tr- challenging, and we're all tired. So, so I think we need to, um, yeah, we just need to continue pushing on to use our namesake's motto, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, well, I think that is a nice, um, optimistic note then to end on. Um, even though we don't know what's going to happen next, I do look forward to chatting with you more in uh, in in the future as as things um, unfold and as we Let's navigate just hope, whatever um, this new normal is going yeah. to is going to look like for us. Let's so. just hope we don't have to have a second anniversary special. <laughs> <laughs> But A, I mean, it's not an impossibility. Um, It's not very likely, but it's not impossible. And and I think maybe one way of dealing with pandemic fatigue is to stop thinking that it's going to be over next week. Um, But to think about it also long term and say, well, okay, we might be in this for much longer than we thought. Now what? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your words of wisdom and for sharing your your thoughts with us and for joining us today with uh, the various time difference and whatnot. I certainly appreciate you making the time. And thank you as well to our listeners for joining us. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Brock Humanities. And we would love to hear from you and what your thoughts are. And um We look forward to having you join us for the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to Forward. Find all of our footnotes, links to more information, transcripts, and past episodes on our website, rawview.ca forward slash humanities. 
We love to hear from our listeners. So please join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Rock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us as well on your favorite podcasting app so you will never miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Alison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Our sound design and editing is done by Nicole Arndt. Theme music is by Khalid Imam. Special thanks to Brock University's Makerspace and Brock University Marketing and Communications for studio and web support. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.